1: You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Patrick Vitale, author of Nuclear Suburbs, Cold War Texan Science and the Pittsburgh Renaissance, published this year by the University of Minnesota Press. Dr. Vitale, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much, Stentor. It's really nice to be here uh, and to get the chance to talk to you today.
1: So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
0: Okay, so I'm a geographer. I'm an assistant professor of geography at Eastern Connecticut State University. Uh, And, you know, by way of this book, my background or how I got into this book is that I grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh in one of the communities that I write about. Uh, So I grew up in the eastern suburbs uh, in a community that Uh, had a significant number of nuclear engineers living in it. There were, of our five immediate neighbors uh, on our little block, uh, three of them were nuclear engineers, which obviously as a child wasn't something I thought very much about. Um, It was a very, sort of very typical suburb, um, very white, very middle class, um, and, you know, full of nuclear engineers. And I didn't really think very much about that. Um, And then I... uh, Got into doing work on historical geography in Pittsburgh over a sort of very long trajectory uh, and ended up doing my Ph.D. in Toronto. And this book uh, emerged out of that. So it kind of went it went back and looked at that place that I grew up um, and investigated uh, why it is that I grew up in the neighborhood uh, where I grew up and, you know, what the social and political characteristics of that place are.
1: Okay. So to kind of set the scene here, the book is about the so-called Pittsburgh Renaissance. So could you tell our listeners what the Pittsburgh Renaissance is and maybe a bit about how your book uh, challenges maybe some of the conventional narratives about what happened during that period of the city's history?
0: Sure. So there's been multiple renaissances. Pittsburgh is a city that has been somewhat obsessed with declaring uh, moments of renewal renaissances over the last uh, now 70 years. So I don't know how we're counting these days, but we're probably on our third or fourth renaissance in the city. Uh, The first renaissance is the most influential one, uh, and this is the one immediately after World War II. Uh, And it's a long story. I'll try to tell it as quickly as I can. Uh, In this renaissance, uh, what happens is the city's elite, who are largely the leaders of the major industrial companies, so US. Steel, Westinghouse, Alcoa, uh, PPG, uh, and the region's banks, uh, Mellon Bank uh, in particular, uh, and Richard King Mellon, uh, who was the you know the family behind Mellon Bank, uh, formed an organization called the Allegheny Conference on Community Development. Uh, and the goal of the, of the Allegheny Conference on Community Development was to transform the city's built environment, uh, its natural environment, and its economy. Uh, and there was an article that I really like in Fortune magazine that described it as an experiment in survival for the Pittsburgh region. Uh, and what they meant by that was that it was an attempt to transform an industrial city into a more modern, more post industrial economy that was more suited to the economy uh, of the post-war period. Uh, And so what the Allegheny Conference did is it led this broad effort to remake really many characteristics of Pittsburgh. Uh, Pollution control was one of the big things they were involved in. Flood control uh, was one of the things they were involved in. Uh, Remaking the the city, uh, urban renewal, uh, clearing uh, neighborhoods that they saw as undesirable that were largely black, and working class uh, were other aspects uh, of this renaissance. And the final element of the renaissance that I uncover in my research a little bit of this first renaissance uh, is uh, an effort to transform or move the economy away from manufacturing and towards what we might consider post-industrial activities. So these are things like medicine, higher education, and research and development, uh, and that's where my story uh, really takes up that particular aspect of the Renaissance that very no one has really written about before, which is how it is that the city's leaders tried to foster the growth of research and development uh, in the region.
1: Okay. So one of the major literatures that your book is in conversation with is the science and technology studies uh, literature. And you mentioned in your introduction, and you say if you wanted to learn about nuclear engineers in their labs, then you have like a whole shelf of books that's been done on that aspect. Uh, But what you wanted to do was to focus on what nuclear engineers were doing outside of their labs, you know, in their homes and communities. So why is it important to see this other side of the scientific activity?
0: Yeah, I think that, it, I think that every profession to some degree is shaped by their social environments that they live in and the social context uh, that, you know, shapes their thinking and their community. So this isn't just, you, this isn't a story that we could just tell about scientists and engineers, but what is a particular characteristic of scientists and engineers oftentimes is that they've tend to develop systems of thought that eliminate the context from the work uh, that they do. uh, So that, uh, you know, Donna Haraway has this idea that scientists assume a kind of view from nowhere, right? Or a God trick, uh, she calls it. Uh, And one of the things that I was trying to do in this book is to demonstrate that there were particular characteristics of Pittsburgh during the Cold War that allowed for scientists and engineers to do their work. Now, I I don't think that, what I'm not trying to say here is that the way that they designed a reactor in a certain way was determined by the fact that they lived in the suburbs. That would be, if that is the case, I did not uncover that uh, in my research. But every element of scientists and engineers' lives uh, was reproduced through the social environments that they lived in the suburbs, uh, and in a city that was being transformed in this moment in the 1950s and 1960s in order to make it more appealing to scientists and engineers. So whether in their laboratories or in the suburbs where they were living, or the city where they were oftentimes recreating, they were quite uh, privileged subjects uh, in this moment in time. And what I wanted to do in the book was to suggest ways that science and technology studies could engage a little bit more with the world outside of the laboratory and how it is that that world is also essential to the work of techno science. Uh, and it I, that world I, it, I think is very rarely visible uh, within the field of science and technology studies.
1: Okay, and in your you know, discussion of that world outside, you you know bringing kind of a an intersectional kind of um, perspective, and you look at the role of things like race and gender and class in uh, constructing this world. And so, I want to pick up first on the gender dimension, uh, and you know I'm almost wondered when I was starting this book if the the nuclear in the title was sort of a a pun on the idea of the nuclear family, since, you know, we're talking about this class of white male scientists and engineers who are kind of trying to form this, you know, the 1950s, leave it to Beaver kind of households in the the suburbs. So what is the the role that gender played in um, the situations that you're writing about in the book?
0: Gender played a major role in the s- nuclear scientists and engineers' lives uh, and in their work. One thing to say right off the back is that despite my efforts to find women, nuclear engineers, and scientists to interview, uh, I was unable to do so. Uh, and that was a characteristic of the field uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. Most of my interviews were with nuclear engineers and scientists in the 1950s and 1960s. And there were few women uh, working in the field at that time. Many of the women that, who were working in that field in that time, when they had uh, professional degrees, were oftentimes still being relocated uh, to... Uh, Less prestigious roles uh, within the laboratory. So those few women that did work um, in uh, as scientists and engineers in the laboratory, oftentimes were not um, treated uh, the same as male scientists and engineers. But there were very few of them. I mean, I was unable to locate a single one. Uh, so that was one thing: is just the field was very much a, a masculine, male-dominated field, and that's something I talk about. Uh, quite a lot in the latter sections uh, of the book. Uh, the second thing to note about gender is that these men who are working as nuclear engineers and scientists were fully supported uh, by the labor of women at home. And it wasn't just, you know, in the classic ways that we think about women supporting uh, men's work in these 1950s stereotypical suburbs, right? Caring for children and cleaning homes and cooking dinner. Uh, all of that was more often than not, uh, completely true. Uh, but oftentimes also in, especially when these engineers worked in more managerial roles, uh, their partners their female partners who they were always married. So they were always wives, um, were providing all kinds of really professional support for them, uh, in their work. So for example, uh, if an uh, engineer relocated um, overseas to work on a reactor that Westinghouse was developing overseas, uh, the company would oftentimes uh, interview the wife to make sure that she was equipped to handle the rigors of living abroad. Uh, one of the uh, male engineers that I interviewed, his wife sat in on the interview, uh, and she explained to me that Westinghouse actually had um, her write a guide um, on how to relocate a family uh, because she was so good. Um, at doing this. So there was not just the unpaid work at the home that was supporting nuclear engineers and their ability to go and work, oftentimes very long hours uh, in the laboratories, um, but also um, wives were oftentimes providing really like logistical support uh, for these men uh, in their professional lives.
1: Okay, so I want to actually pick up then on something you mentioned there about. You know the or these reactors being developed in Pittsburgh by the engineers working there, but then they're being exported all over the world, and you know some of these people then are going overseas as uh, part of that. So you really portray the development of technoscience in Pittsburgh as being not just about you know a renaissance for Pittsburgh and something that is uh, reshaping this particular city. But there's also kind of a geopolitical project embedded in that with the uh, way that nuclear technology was being developed after uh, the Second World War. So could you talk a little more about that connection between the specific place that you're writing about in the book and this broader geopolitical uh, field that it's connected to? Yeah,
0: there's a historian of scientists named John Krieg, and he has written extensively about the geopolitical uses of nuclear technology for the United States uh, through the Atoms for Peace program and other programs. So there's there's two really key elements uh, to this story, I think. Uh, I, I'm going to simplify it here for purposes of, of making this uh, as clear as possible uh, and as short of time as possible. So. Westinghouse was the company that made nuclear technology in Pittsburgh, and Westinghouse really made two main products that were uh, sort of elements of nuclear technology. One was a nuclear reactor for power plants, um, and the other was a nuclear reactor for the propulsion of naval ships. Now, each of these had a a purpose for the U.S. uh, internationally. Uh, the reactor that powered ships would power aircraft carriers and submarines. So they were really very direct tools of American imperialism uh, around the world. The submarines were a key counter to the threat uh, of nuclear war from the Soviet Union. It was another element of the United States nuclear deterrence. But equally important, these reactors also powered aircraft carriers Uh, And the ability of the United States to position aircraft carriers all around the world allowed it to engage in wars in places like Vietnam and later in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, One characteristic of a a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier is it very rarely ever has to refuel. Um, It's a period of many, 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 many years. So this means that they really become very key uh, elements of the U.S.'s uh, military infrastructure. But also, nuclear power plants were also uh, a form for the U.S. to uh, exert its uh, influence abroad. Uh, And that was because the U.S. would uh, uh, export both fuel and the reactors themselves um, in a way to uh, exert greater influence in places like Europe um, and uh, other parts of the world. Largely, most of these reactors went to Europe, uh, to Japan. Um, and I think to a lesser extent uh, to Korea. So providing power uh, to these countries uh, allowed the U.S. To, to build relationships with them, but it also created an excellent market uh, for U.S. companies like Westinghouse, uh, where they made a great deal of money, particularly selling nuclear fuel uh, to countries abroad.
1: Okay. And then... Kind of connected to that, there's a thread going through the book about things being hidden. Uh, So you get the sort of official or popular story about what's going on that kind of hides the unsavory aspects of life that either uh, things depend on or the consequences that ensue for them. So would you be able to talk a little more about the role of the secrecy or, or hiding uh, played in the uh, formation of the landscape of Pittsburgh during this uh, era and about the sort of role of uncovering that that your book is doing?
0: I think the major secret that the book addresses is probably not one that's uh, something that's all that secretive to us in the present moment, Uh, and that is the degree to which white college educated male engineers and scientists uh, are supported by an array of advantages, uh, whether it is uh, intergenerational wealth or access to government money to go to school, or the ability to buy homes in communities where those communities um, accrue value, or the support uh, of living in a patriarchal society uh, where they rely heavily on women to reproduce their daily existence, or living in in a city that is being reimagined uh, around them and is really valuing them on a daily basis. So that, you know, nuclear engineers and scientists, unlike steel workers in this moment or unlike coal miners in this moment, are really being celebrated as really the most desirable citizens uh, in Pittsburgh. Now, all of that stuff, I think, to all of us today looking back on this is hopefully uh, many of those different things that I've just talked about are, are not secrets. But what is Somewhat remarkable is the degree to which they were oftentimes secrets to the nuclear scientists and engineers uh, themselves. And I think that's the key thing that's really rendered invisible um, in a lot of their uh, work and their thinking about their work is the degree to which they believe fundamentally that they got to where they did um, because of their own abilities. And their own efforts, and because they are expertly trained experts. They're scientists and engineers, and they know how to build a nuclear reactor, and that's why it is that they're doing what they're doing. Uh, And what is oftentimes quite invisible to them is all of the different structures that are themselves oftentimes violent and, uh, and unjust that facilitate their ability to do their work. So I think that's the primary thing You know, it's not like it's some top secret Russian spy or something that's working in or, you know, some secret facility that's supporting their work. It's really the society itself that is allowing them to go about building these reactors, but is oftentimes quite um, invisible to them uh, in their own reflections uh, about their lives and their work.
1: Yeah, I think those are sometimes the, the most impactful secrets are the ones that aren't really being you know kept top secret they're out there if you look for it but people just render it invisible by not paying attention to it uh and then it you know gets sort of shuffled off to the side until someone comes along and says hey we need to look at this you know dimension to uh to life
0: yeah that's very true and i i would say that one thing it wasn't as though they had been trained to think about these questions, and it wasn't as though they spent a great deal of time reflecting on uh, the communities where they were living. So many of them, when I I was oftentimes one of the first people who ever asked, you know, why did you buy a house in this community? And they were oftentimes really flummoxed by this question for a period of time, and we would have to work through it uh, together, to kind of finally get them to to the conclusion that they didn't choose their house because it was the closest to the laboratory, because oftentimes it wasn't the closest to the laboratory, but that is oftentimes what they first told me, and then I would pull out a map and be and say, you know, it, it actually wasn't. Um, it, it had to do very much with uh, assumptions about class and race and what were the suitable communities for scientists and engineers to live in. So they were making decisions to live in segregated communities, but they really weren't. Ever really aware that they were doing that in a in oftentimes a very clear way to them?
1: Yeah, and so it seems like with some of these processes that and you know this might be a little bit of a, a curveball uh, question for you, but I'm you know interested in in your thoughts on this that this in some ways could be seen as kind of a story about environmental justice or environmental injustice because we've got a period at which we have this really conscious attempt to clean up the city, to move away from steel that has this reputation as this very dirty industry. And, you know, the Pittsburgh had this you know, terrible pollution problem um, and to, you know, kind of clean up the city, move to what was seen as this, you know, industry, you know, nuclear uh, as this very clean, kind of the opposite of steel in a lot of ways, kind of industry that's really tied into things like creation of these, you know, all white suburbs and, you know, at the same time you're getting these urban renewal projects that are just decimating some of the African-American neighborhoods, uh, in the city. So I guess I kind of just, I'm interested in your thoughts about seeing this as a, an environmental justice issue. Um.
0: Yeah, I think that it it is on probably on two different dimensions. One, the degree to which when Pittsburgh was remade through this first renaissance, it was really remade uh, for its white uh, middle-class residents. Uh, And so it was an environmental justice issue clearly and to the extent to which those residents were having amenities built for them, those residents were not having their homes taken from them and their communities taken from them and torn down. Uh, And that's one element of the environmental justice um, issue. Another element that I don't get into as much as I could have in the book is that each of these men that I interviewed was a, a serious uh advocate for nuclear power oftentimes it kind of ranged there was a range of advocacy some were really very involved uh, politically in promoting nuclear power they spoke on college campuses they were um, members of professional organizations many of them admitted that they what they said quote unquote voted the nuclear ticket uh, which meant that they voted for whatever candidate they thought would be best for uh, a nuclear industry that they oftentimes saw as embattled by the public but they were never really able to acknowledge the the problems of nuclear power. And the problems of nuclear power are oftentimes very removed from their lives. They designed the reactor, but they didn't mine the uranium, uh, which is oftentimes a very dangerous activity. Uh, they didn't... Uh, have to live around the waste uh, that nuclear reactors uh, produced. They themselves didn't live particularly proximate to any nuclear reactors. The closest nuclear reactor was, you know, 30 or 40 miles away. Uh, so again, they were advocating for this technology, but they were not themselves. They were very insulated from the the negative or harmful effects uh, that, that technology had uh, on the environment.
1: Okay, and you've made a few references as we've gone along here to some of the interviews that that you did. So I want to kind of drill down on that a little bit, because in the the book, you don't hit us with a big capital M methodology chapter. Um, So I I was hoping you kind of pull together some of the strands of how you actually went about researching this book, how you uh, compiled all of the information that you base it on.
0: Yeah, so part of it was archival. uh, And I could talk about that more later. Uh, The oral histories were driven largely by a snowball sample. And what I did was I went, uh, as soon as I started doing the research uh, in 2007, I think I started, I went and interviewed my neighbor across the street. uh, And the interviews are all anonymous, so I won't tell that person's name. Uh, And that person then although that person I actually don't quote at all in the book. Um, And that person then introduced me to many, many of their colleagues, and they introduced me to more colleagues and more colleagues and more colleagues. And eventually um, I got over, my research started in the eastern suburbs. And in the eastern suburbs, typically nuclear engineers worked in the commercial power division because that was based in the eastern suburbs. But eventually I got more over into the southern suburbs uh, where the Bettis Laboratory is based. The Bettis Laboratory made reactors for the military for so for submarines and aircraft carriers um and there eventually for a period of time in the community of pleasant hills i would interview somebody and they would say oh you got to talk to my neighbor in the backyard uh and i would sometimes you know literally walk around the block and go and interview their neighbor uh on the same day there were some days where i actually had to bring multiple batteries for my recorder because you know I was doing uh, quite a few of these interviews in a day as they one person introduced me to the other person, introduced me to the other person. Uh, the methodology was a pretty basic oral history methodology where I would sit down with them. I would ask them to tell me a bit about their life, uh, what kind of work they did, how they ended up at Westinghouse, and how they ended up in Pittsburgh if they had moved from outside of the region. And usually throughout that process, there would be uh, digressions uh, where they would say something interesting. I would ask them a little bit more about it. The narrative would move off in a direction. And after that had played itself out, uh, we would come back to talking a little bit more uh, about their lives. That was, the, that was the methodology. And that's how I found people. I, I don't think that if there's a really scientific orientation to oral history, I don't have it. Uh, My approach to oral history is just to ask people to tell me uh, about their lives. Like any person who's doing interviews, I had a set of questions that I wanted to ask. um, And I always kept those in the back of my mind. So I always wanted to ask, you know, what were your thoughts if you worked on weapons? You know, how did you feel about those weapons? Uh, Did you have strong feelings about communism or the Soviet Union, uh, those kinds of questions. But largely, uh, it it was just asking people to tell you about their life in a a very informal sense. And for the most part, people were very, very enthusiastic to talk. And this was a real contrast to earlier research I had done. I had done earlier oral histories with steelworkers in the Mon Valley. And that research was looking at how it is that class class identities of steelworkers changed as they moved into the environment of the suburbs. And I found that research very challenging because despite my efforts to convince steelworkers that they had an interesting story to tell, because of the, you know, Richard Sennett has this term called the hidden injuries of class. And because they had internalized uh, oftentimes an understanding that their stories weren't worth telling, I had to. It was oftentimes like pulling teeth to get them to really open up uh, about their lives. That was less often a problem uh, with many of the nuclear engineers and scientists I talked to. They, they, you know, they had. A, they were a bit more egotistical. Uh, they weren't arrogant, but they were very happy to talk about themselves. So they were oftentimes very forthcoming. It, it wasn't hard to get most people to talk uh, about. Uh, you know, what they had done and where they had lived and uh, things of that sort.
1: Okay. And you mentioned there's an archival component to it too. Was it difficult to get a hold of some of these documents and records for, you know, an industry that I imagine is, you know, kind of sensitive and there's, you know, political dimensions to the the military parts of it. So, you know, what kind of records did you uh, look at and, you know, what was the process like of getting access to those things?
0: Yeah, there's two different ways that I use the archival sources. One is to look at how the city's elite reimagine the region around scientists and engineers. And those records all come from an organization that I talked about a little bit ago called the Allegheny Conference on Community Development. That was the organization that led uh, Pittsburgh's renaissance. Uh, their archives are available at the Heinz History Center, uh, or I think it's now they, they have an archive there. They, they've changed the name recently, but I think it's called the John Detter uh, Library and Archives. And that's a really good collection uh, that there's a lot that can be done with it by other researchers still. Uh, it's big. Um, it's pretty intact. Uh, and uh, that was very useful. The other collection I used a lot and was much less useful, unfortunately, was the Heinz History Center also has a Westinghouse collection but that was largely the, pub- the public relations materials of Westinghouse. So it's around 450 archival boxes. Those of you who have done archival research know the kind of box I'm talking about, like a standard file box, uh, which is a, a big collection, but not a big collection for a massive corporation that was a Fortune 500 company that existed for you a know, hundred years or more. Uh, so, a lot of materials were missing from that collection. Those were materials that Westinghouse had saved because they considered them valuable public relations materials and had transferred over to the Heinz History Center. As a result, I didn't have access to correspondence, uh, I didn't have access to decision making documents, um, financial materials. All of that is uh, somewhere. Uh, I, I imagine it still exists somewhere, but it was not materials that I was able to access. Westinghouse um, is no longer Westinghouse. It, the company no longer exists. Um, it was bought by, or it, I'm not really sure. I can't remember the the transformation, but it became CBS and then it became Viacom and then it became CBS again uh, because it always had a media component to it. Uh, and so the Industrial core of the company is just no longer there. It's all been sold off, uh, and their archives I think still exist somewhere, but they're not publicly available. So the materials that I had from Westinghouse, when they were useful, when they were really rich, they pertain to a particular historic moment that the company wanted to document. So the company made an atom smasher, which was this uh, what they sold as a cutting edge research facility. Uh, in the 1930s. There's really rich materials about that atom smasher. The company built a major research center along the parkway uh, in Churchill. Uh, there's lots and lots of uh, correspondence and details about that research center because the company wanted to document um, its history. And so I, I wrote where the company left records. Uh, that was the decision I had to make um, because there wasn't you, you know, it was impossible to fill in the holes that were uh, many uh, in this archival collection. Fortunately, there were a couple of different areas that I was able to build, uh, you know, an argument around. Um, but those were because the company had intentionally uh, kept those records. Uh, and there was very, very, very little um, relating to defense um, or to the Bettis Laboratory, so all of the work that i talk about about bettis um is drawing largely from the oral histories um not from uh the materials of the company itself
1: okay so now changing gears a little bit you mentioned way back at the beginning that you know pittsburgh's been through a a whole bunch of renaissances we're on you know three or four now depending on uh who's doing the counting and so I'm interested in what kinds of lessons you think that the Pittsburgh of today might draw from what you've written about the original Pittsburgh Renaissance.
0: So I grew grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, and then I went to Pitt uh, in the 1990s. So between 1998 and 2001, I was there. Uh, And that was a time period where this city was really dominated by an understanding that young people were not attracted to the city, and that they were leaving the city, and that the city needed to make efforts to attract young people. And if you were in Pittsburgh at that time period, young people were a kind of central character. Uh, And if you were actually young, and you lived in Pittsburgh, you were like, wait, there's quite a few of us here, you know, why are we not being, uh, you know, why are we so valuable? And also, why aren't those of us who are actually living here are considered valuable. Um, and uh, of course, the, the very character of the young person was itself a, a, a racialized and classed um, character. A young person was a educated um, professional uh, of some sort. Uh, and so that kind of framed my understanding of the city because That wasn't the first time that that kind of discourse existed, right? There was multiple moments throughout the city's history where there was a need to attract outsiders to the city in order to allow for its economy to grow, which would then in turn benefit all uh, Pittsburghers. And at the same time that I was living in Pittsburgh in the 1990s, there was somebody who was really selling this snake oil um, all around the world, uh, and that was Richard Florida. Um, And so Richard Florida, who came out of Pittsburgh, who came out of CMU at this time period, really developed a theory that was the same operational theory that the city's planners and leaders had been using for years and years and years, which is that if you attract the creative class or if you attract young people or if you attract scientists and engineers, then we will or knowledge workers or whatever tech workers today, then we will cause the economy to grow and all Pittsburghers uh, will benefit uh, from that process. And that's still going on in this city. And the fundamental lesson that I hope that we know already, but if we don't know, I hope people will draw from my book, is that that does not work. (laughs) It does not prove to rise all boats. What happens is, you know, the people who are being targeted and attracted to the region may accrue some benefit from moving to the area. Uh, It's possible that they do, but the primary beneficiaries of this are oftentimes the major companies that are based in the region. Uh, So it's the banks, um, it's the companies like Westinghouse or today the companies like Uber uh, that have facilities um, in the region. So I think that this narrative that we Attract a desirable citizen to the city in order to cause the city to grow and everybody to prosper uh, is is incredibly problematic um, and one that we need to um, dispose of. Uh, I think that as Pittsburgh has been, you know, "quote unquote" discovered um, in the last ten years or so, I think this narrative has, has become less palpable uh, in the region. Uh, but it, it, you know, it had a good. 65 year run there where, you know, every decade or so uh there was a discovery that we needed to attract people to the city um again and again and again. The second element I would say that and this is another lesson I think that we should draw from Pittsburgh, is the degree to which the city is always being remade again and again and again and again and again. And again. Um and I I think that there's probably uh, a lesson that we can draw there, which is that, you know, this this remaking is never really addressing the actual fundamental problems that exist in the region, which are a history of racism, which are a history of environmental justice, which are a history of exploitation of workers, um, which are a history of, you know, patriarchal social relations that have really shaped the region for many, many, many centuries um, or Depending on the issue, um, a century or so. Um, And that sort of continual effort to remake the region oftentimes masks what actually should be remade, um, which is the fundamentally unjust and unequal um, social processes that shape the region
1: yeah, I'm that all sounds right on to me as someone living in Pittsburgh. I hear some of these same narratives you're talking about about attracting uh, people to the city. And I also can see that you know we're we're sort of ending up with there's Google and there's the rest of Pittsburgh and they happen to be located at the same latitude and longitude and that's about it um, with this you know emphasis on the the current tech economy and the current uh iteration of renaissance that we're in uh today so that that sounds pretty uh pretty accurate there for the city as we know it today mm-hmm.
0: yeah the the tech economy is always going to be in its Capitalist permutation is always going to be based uh, in, you know, in, in inequality between different types of workers, um, and so to the degree to which the discourse of the tech economy uh, prioritizes the interests of a certain set of workers, those who are college educated, um, it, you know, it, it's always going to produce uh, injustices, uh, and you know, I mean, I, I think you can see that playing out very clearly right now uh in Pittsburgh neighborhoods like Lawrenceville or the Strip District, uh where, you know, there is again a, a good deal of displacement of uh working class people and people of color, uh particularly from Lawrenceville, uh, as that neighborhood is being sort of reimagined around uh, you know, technology industries of various sorts. Uh it's it's the same story that's been going on in the region for, for seventy years for sure. Yeah. Or longer.
1: Yeah. So to wrap up our interview here, uh, we always like to ask what you're working on next. So what kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out?
0: Well, you know, COVID-19 has really thrown research for a loop, um, For I think for most people, uh, and certainly for me uh, as well. Uh, There's two projects that I'm Hoping to one that I had already started and then was uh, paused by the pandemic, uh, and another that I'm really looking forward to getting started with uh, in the next um, year or so. The one project I live in a town called Willimantic. Um, it's in Connecticut. Um, it's where the university that I'm based is located. Uh, and Willimantic is uh, it's called the Thread City. So it was the former center of thread manufacturing uh, in the United States, cotton thread manufacturing, uh, and. The cotton thread is, industry is no longer here, so what's left is a deindustrialized community. Uh, it's one of the poorest communities um, in Connecticut, uh, and it has a, a university in it. that's uh, a small university where I teach, Eastern Connecticut State University. One of the things I've got really, I've been really interested in researching in this town uh, is the role of policing uh, in urban image making. Uh, so. The city is very intensely policed. It's a small city of around 20,000 people, uh, but there's a very large police department. um, And uh, that police department is heavily engaged, largely in policing what we might refer to as um, quality of life offenses. So, you know, the number one offenses or arrests in the community um, are breach of peace um, and disorderly conduct. So these are largely crimes uh, of being poor. Uh, And what I'm interested in doing for this research project is to look at the role of the police um, in policing poverty uh, and the way in which they're enlisted uh, in order to make this community that I live in, which is a poor deindustrialized community, more competitive um, economically. So the goal of the city's leaders is to use the police force to create quality of life to attract uh, investment and uh, people to move uh, to this uh, this community. So that's one project that I uh, had started doing work on um, and then uh, got kind of crushed by the pandemic. Uh, But I'm hoping to get back to it soon. The other project that I'm really interested in getting started on is uh, is a project on Hartford and the insurance industry. Uh, And I'm really interested in looking and tracing the role of the insurance industry in shaping Hartford over the last um, 140 or so years, um, or a little bit more than that, that the insurance industry um, has been based in Hartford. Uh, Hartford is a really, really um, stark city in terms of inequity. Um, you know, it's, parts of it are extremely poor. Parts of it are extremely wealthy, um, particularly its suburbs. Uh, and I'm really curious in doing for this project, I'm really I'm interested in looking at the kind of city that the insurance industry makes um, and how it is that it forms uh, a metropolitan region uh, that's that's incredibly unjust and what that has to do with how it is that the insurance industry operates and how people who work in the insurance industry uh, think about questions uh, of risk uh, in the social environment. So that's research that I really, that, that's like my idea of what I hope my next um, big project will be. Uh, unfortunately, if the Connecticut State University system gets its way, um, we'll soon be teaching a 5 5 up here. Uh, and if that is the case, then uh, it may be a long, long time till I uh, or anyone else um, at, the, at our institution gets to do uh, research. Um, so hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, uh, but we'll see.
1: All right. Yeah. Hopefully that that doesn't happen and hopefully uh, it doesn't give the Pennsylvania state system any ideas. Uh, they, they tried to pull that one uh, a little while back when we had our contract renegotiations and we managed to stop that. So I hope you're able to do that too and, and get on with some of those research projects. And if those turn into books, we'd love to have you back on to talk about them. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, it's been really nice to talk to you. And, uh, you know, good luck in that continued fight with your own state university system. Uh, It's a difficult time.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, You just heard a conversation with Patrick Vitale, author of Nuclear Suburbs, Cold War Technoscience and the Pittsburgh Renaissance, published this year by the University of Minnesota Press.